Well, I'd like us uh, to look at John chapter 11 this morning. It's uh, all to do with uh, the death and resurrection of this man that we read about, who was called Lazarus, who lived in a place called Bethany, which was two miles outside of Jerusalem. And it's interesting to see the events that transpired there. But uh, the verse that I want us to concentrate upon really is that verse where he tells us that Jesus wept. And uh, for all of you who are uh, familiar with this, uh, you know that this is actually the shortest verse in the Bible. And what it does for us as we read this particular account is that it does reveal to us something of the humanity of Jesus. I, I put it like that because, uh, generally speaking, this book really is to reveal to us the glory of who Jesus is. You know, when you start to read in the opening chapter, isn't it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes on in verse 14 of that chapter to say, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so what John starts off with in his prologue is that he wants to demonstrate to us and show to us quite clearly that Jesus is none other than God Himself. It is a clear declaration of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the person that He is just about to show to these particular people as he was writing his gospel, he wants them to realize at the outset that Jesus is none other than God. And this is one of the wonderful truths, isn't it, that we believe in who Jesus is, that he is fundamentally God who has come into this world, that took upon himself a human body. The Word became flesh and he dwelt among us. In other words, this God was there throughout the realms of eternity. Suddenly, the fullness of time became a man. And in this particular part of John's gospel, he wants to demonstrate to us the side of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus. He is the God-man, isn't he? God on the one hand, infinite in every possible way, and yet on the other side, he is a man constrained by human place and human conditions. And here we see him demonstrating it to us in that it tells us that Jesus wept. The most basic, fundamental thing about human nature, the ability to weep, to cry because of the situation perhaps in which you find yourself, the conditions under which you live, and things like that, and things that happen to you can bring you to that place whereby you can cry. And there, so it demonstrates, doesn't it, that we have some sense of feeling we have some sense of compassion within ourselves. And when you read about Jesus, isn't it, it tells us that uh, Jesus is our great high priest. And when the writer to the Hebrews wants to demonstrate to who Jesus is, he talks about him as being our great high priest. And he said, we have one, isn't it? We have one who can be touched or he can sympathize with our situation. Because in all points he was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, when he lived in this world, went through all the difficulties, all the problems, all the trials that people can go through. And through his experience, he knows what it is to be able to sympathize with you and me. And here we see a demonstration of that, don't we? Him sympathizing with the situation under which 
he found himself when he was confronted with Mary and Martha and these people who were grieving over the death of their brother. And if you were to say to us, well, why were they grieving? Well, of course, they had a love for their brother, and this was a suddenly a tragic loss to them, as all death is. And because they had lost their brother, they were in that state of grief. They were, as it were, cast down within themselves. And what came to even highlight that and even heighten their sense of grief was the fact that they sent a message to Jesus that we read about in the near part of the chapter, and he's saying to him that he whom you love is ill. At death's door, as it were. And when they speak to Jesus, both of the sisters say exactly the same thing. They said like this to him, that if you had come, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, this really isn't an accusation against Jesus. But what it is, they were saying that if you had been here, you could have healed my brother. Even afterwards, isn't it, when these people observe Jesus' grief itself at that particular time, isn't it? They say like this, didn't they? Could not he open the eyes of the blind, have healed this man? And so they all had this common belief that if Jesus had been there before Lazarus had died, that he would have been able to have restored Lazarus to full health and strength. And so they, they looked at Jesus in this way. But when Jesus is confronting Martha, he enters into this great discussion of the resurrection. And you can see the common belief among the Jews was this, that when Jesus says, your brother shall rise, she says, yes, I know you'll rise in the resurrection, in the day of the resurrection, the great resurrection. There was this belief with the Jews that there was going to be a, a huge resurrection on the last day. Judgment was coming. This resurrection was going to take place. And then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. And so what he wants to show to them is, here I am. I am the embodiment of the resurrection and of the life. And so you see, he says to her, do you believe this? You're going to see something of the glory of God. Do you believe this? And then you have this situation, do you? These people coming. And it just says that when Mary comes and Jesus sees the situation and she sees the weeping, isn't it? And you, read about, you can read about it here, can't you? About them weeping and crying at this particular time. And here you have it. The verse before we, we read about Jesus wept, isn't it? It says in verse 33, Therefore when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. You see, here was the situation, the tragedy of it all. And then Jesus, it tells us, wept. Now, this word is actually quite interesting, you see, because you can weep in different ways, can't you? If you've been to a funeral, you've seen people weeping in different ways, or you might, in fact, have wept in different ways. Sometimes you see people overcome, distraught, and physically, as it were, crying out in their stress. And then on the other hand, you can see people who are standing by the graveside 
and there's no great emotion to be seen upon them. But you can see the tears running down their cheeks. The feeling of the grief too great for words. All they can do is weep. And it's that sense of weeping here that is mentioned about Jesus. Jesus wept. He wasn't overcome, as it were, in outbursts of tears and of crying. But it simply says that he wept. In other words, tears just poured from his eyes. When you read about these other people at this particular time, there in verse 32, isn't it? When it says, there were Mary, or verse 33 rather, therefore when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now this weeping is a different word altogether. This weeping is that outbursts of weeping. And in their culture, it was common at every funeral to employ people. And it was their job and it was their occupation simply to come as mourners, to weep in the funeral, to cry out in the funeral, to express deep emotion. That wasn't to say that they didn't feel it. And I'm sure that Mary and Martha felt it. And the tears and the crying that they expressed at this time was a true demonstration of their felt loss for their brother. But it is a completely different words. And so you see here, why is it that Jesus is weeping at this particular time? And why is it there is this sense of this deep distress? And yet, within that context of Jesus weeping, what you do find, there is another expression used about the emotions that are going on within the heart and soul of Jesus. It tells us, isn't it, that when he saw them weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And again, a little later on, it says like this to them, isn't it, that he himself, in verse 38, then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. The expression here is one of, sometimes it's translated in, in different ways. It's described as groaning here or was moved deeply. But in actual fact, I was reading uh, in Don Carson's commentary, in actual fact on this, and he argues the case that the actual word there, which most translators have avoided, is to be angered. To be angered. And so you find on the one hand there is this deep sense of anger within Jesus and this deep sense of grief as well. Almost you could say they're, they're in conflict with one another, but they were existing and coexisting within the soul of Jesus at this moment of time. And if we ask the question, why did Jesus weep? Was it simply because this man had died? It can't possibly mean that. Because he says in verse 11 that here was Lazarus, he was sleeping and he was going to go and wake him. But then he goes on to say, doesn't he, that Lazarus is dead. And he says, I'm glad that I wasn't there because when I go there, you're going to see the glory of God. He knew exactly what was going to happen when he got there. He knew that Lazarus had died. When he got there, he knew that he was going to raise him from the dead. He had said to Martha, didn't he, will you believe that I will raise him from the dead? 
Oh, I believe in the resurrection. Yeah, but Jesus wasn't talking about that. He was talking about a specific situation now. So why is it that you get this dual aspect of emotion going on within Jesus? The aspect of anger on the one side and yet weeping on the other side. Because what you find really in the death of this man was the culmination of the cause of all death. And you know what Paul says about death, isn't it? The wages of sin is death. Death comes because of sin. This is the consequence of sin. This is the consequence of man's fall. This is the consequence of that which took place in the Garden of Eden. That which has brought into this world, this fallen world in which we live, all of it terminating in that one aspect of death. All the troubles, trials, and all the difficulties and problems that arise in this world arise from sin. And it terminates in death. And so what Jesus was confronted with here in the death of Lazarus was the death of all mankind. He was just one example of what has taken place within this world. That death has entered in through sin. And death has passed upon all men and that all men have sinned. Sin has come and death has come with it. And so when Jesus was confronted with this, here was his anger towards sin. Here was his weeping because of the state and condition of man. Here was all of what man's state is at this moment of time due to sin. And so Jesus wept. He was weeping for humanity. He was weeping for you and I. He was weeping for the condition that man has brought himself into. But the light in this tunnel, in this dark tunnel is, isn't it, that Jesus has come and said, I am the resurrection and the life. Here there was light. Here there was hope. Here was one who demonstrates to us that he has power over death itself. And so when he calls and summons Lazarus, Lazarus come forth. He was dead, became alive. But you see, why did Jesus weep? Well, in one sense, isn't you get the answer by the people who were standing there and watching Jesus because there was something in the way in which Jesus wept that brought them to the, condition, uh, the conclusion, behold, how he loved him. There was something in the way in which Jesus wept at that moment of time that demonstrated his love towards this man Lazarus. And not only towards this man Lazarus, but towards you and me. Behold how he loved him. It was a casual observer couldn't but miss the fact that Jesus loved him. You even get it when they, they send a message to Jesus, isn't it, in the early part of the chapter, the message was, as I've already said to you, he whom you love he whom you love is sick, is sick or ill. And then in verse 5, it goes on to say, isn't it? John reminds us, Jesus didn't only love Lazarus, but he loved Mary and Martha. He loved the whole family. He was emotionally involved with these particular people. He loved them. He couldn't help but love these people. 
we could say it, I guess, well, truly, when you think about Jesus, isn't it? He is the most loving of all people. And in one sense, he's the demonstration of what humanity should be. You know, we can be traumatized, can't we, in one sense, by the things we see on television, things that have happened. You know, you think of the pandemic, isn't it? They were counting the people who had died in their hundreds, then in their thousands. Now they're counting in their millions worldwide, aren't they? Over four million people have died. You know, and the tragedy of it is that this has happened. But, you know, when we hear it time and time again, and we see so many things that are, are evil and bad in the world, what happens is that we are traumatized, yes, in one sense, but that trauma that we go through creates within us a cast-iron shell that brings us, isn't it, that we don't feel for the situation in which people are going through at different times in their experience. We can see tragedy upon tragedy, you know, and things and evil things going on in the world. You know, this young woman, isn't it, who was just murdered up in London, just walking a five-minute walk, and suddenly she's murdered, you know? But we can look at it, can't we? But, but Jesus, remember what Jesus has got no sin in him to stop the impact of this trauma upon himself. You know, we can build up a, a shell, can't we, because of the, the sin that was in us, it can harden us, can't it? And we become le- more and more resistance against the traumas that are going on in the world. But Jesus was never like that. He had no shell or case, hardening, isn't it, that stopped him feeling these things. He was the most human of all humans. He was the most sensitive of all sensitivity people. He is all human in that sense. And Jesus, when he loved, he loved these particular people. They were special to him. And you know, the thing is that Jesus does have a special people, special in his love. You can argue the case, you see, and you can look at Jesus and you can say, well, Jesus, who is God, God is love, that Jesus could not help but love. And it's true. Jesus cannot help but love. You know, even those who took him and abused him and all kinds of things, he is the one who said to us, isn't it, that we are to love our enemies? How much more than our friends, our family? But we are to love our enemies. Why? Because love is the very essence of who God is. Here is Jesus saying, look, you have to love. And in one sense, here is a common love that Jesus has for all mankind. Do you remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And after Jesus tells him, he went away because he had vast riches. And Jesus had basically said to him, go and give everything that you got away. And then all of a sudden he came to the reality, didn't he? To give everything away, oh, to possess that, to give up all of this for Jesus. No, he wasn't going to do it. But the wonderful thing is, when you read the words there, what it tells you is that Jesus looked upon him and loved him. Even though he was refusing and rejecting Jesus at that moment of time, it still tells you that Jesus loved him. You see, Jesus 
loves. But can I say as well that Jesus does have a specific love as does God? He does have a specific love. I mean, we can love people, can't we, in general, but we don't love people in the same way in which we love our families. Why? Because our families are special to us. They're different from all other people. Okay? Why? Because they are our family. They are blood-related. You can choose your friends, isn't it? But you can't choose your family. You're born into it. And in that sense, you know, we can look at this and think, well, Jesus, yes, he had a general love. And when we read, isn't it, that God so loved the world, that was a general love for God is love. But then when you read about Jesus, he had a specific love as well. He loves his own. You can read about it in chapter 13 and verse 1, isn't it? Where he tells us about Jesus there, isn't it? He says, Yeah, was, you know, they're just about to partake of the Last Supper. And it just tells us that Jesus loved his own and he loved them unto the end. He loved his own. When you read about him in John chapter 17 and you read about Jesus praying, who does he pray for? He says, I pray not for the world. But I pray for them that you have given me out of the world, that they might be with me. They were yours. God owned them. God elected them. God chose them. And you have given them to me. I am now entrusted with their care to look after them and all of this. You have given them to me. And I love these. I love these. Oh, you read of Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, isn't it? That Christ, what? Loved the church. Loved the church. And gave himself for it. He loved the church. Or if you want to be more individualistic, you think of the apostle writing to the church in Galatia. And he says like this, that Christ loved me. And gave himself for me. So we can look at it in the collective sense, can't we? We can think of the church and not a building as such, isn't it? With all its architecture and things and the beauty of it, perhaps. It's not that kind of church that he's talking about. But he is talking about the spiritual church, those who belong to Jesus, those who are gathered throughout every nation, kindred, and tongue, all of those throughout, scattered throughout the world. This is his church. Those who are attached to him emotionally and spiritually, they love the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have come to faith in Him. That's His church. The true church. Christ loved the church. Loved the church. The consequences of His love, you see. And there are all, always consequences to love. And love to love somebody is costly. It's expensive. It is expensive to love somebody. Okay? Remember Jesus saying, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. Here's the cost of loving. Children, isn't it? Children, you're expensive. Okay? <laughs> right? We're not going to send you back because we love you. But the whole point is this, isn't it? That to have this love, it can be expensive. And how expensive was it for Jesus? When you think about it, isn't it? What has he done for us? 
we could see a demonstration of his love, can't we? Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, shouldn't that love be reciprocated, that we love him because he first loved us? Shouldn't we love him like that? You see here, Jesus loving these people, demonstrating his love to them, raising up Lazarus at this moment of time, even though he knew that this was sealing his fate with the Sanhedrin, with the religious leaders of the day, who took this one miracle that Jesus performed and used it in order that they might put him to death. It was the final conclusive thing in their whole thinking about Jesus. But he loved Lazarus. And he demonstrated the glory of God in raising Lazarus. But his great love, you see, is towards his church and towards his people. In that quotation that I gave you from uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, what you find is that it is given the context of husband loving your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. In other words, the church has become into a wonderful relationship with him that he describes us as being his bride, his wife. And when you read in the book of Revelation chapter 19 about What's going to happen? Let me just read these verses to you because uh, I don't want to miss out any little bits, okay? And it says like this, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. And the fine linen is the righteousness, righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We've been called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is a day appointed in heaven when Jesus is going to be united to his church forever and forever. That's what he's talking about. And the blessedness of that is for you and I who have been summoned by God in order that we might be brought to that marriage feast of the Lamb. What is it to go to a marriage feast? What's there? There is joy and there is rejoicing. The bride has prepared herself. She is adorned in all the beauty of the bride. Everything about her. She has been washed, she has been cleansed, she has been sanctified, she has been prepared for that one day. And that day is an endless day. It goes on forever. The marriage feast of the Lamb. Jesus and his bride coming together forever. What a glorious picture it is. And I suppose I could ask the question, couldn't I? Have you been summoned to this marriage feast of the Lamb. Have you accepted the invitation? Have you received Jesus as your Savior? And when you get to that point, doesn't it? You have to say, well, how can I know if Jesus loves me? You see, the whole point is this, that knowing if Jesus loves you is such a blessing 
You see, you can handle this question in two different ways because there are two ways in which you can see how Jesus can love you. There's one is objective, and there is another which is subjective. You know, the devil comes along, doesn't he? You've got problems in your life, you've got difficulties and all things like that. And the devil comes along and he whispers in your ear, does God really love you? Does Jesus really care for you? Is Jesus really interested in you? Is Jesus praying for you at this moment of time? Is he concerned for your situation? Your situation is worse than everybody else's situation. What is he trying to do? Well, he tries to cast doubts into your heart and mind. He tries to create fear within Unbelief. Now let me just tell you how to overcome. How has Jesus loved you? Jesus has laid down his life for you. Do you want an objective example of Jesus' love? Look at Calvary. As the Apostle Paul has said, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Or Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know my name. Why? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Why? Because he loves the sheep. He's interested in the sheep. They're valuable to him. They are precious to the shepherd. In the very same way that you and I, if we have come to faith in Jesus, are precious to him. And if we want that confidence in who Jesus has done for you and for me, we look at Calvary. We always look at Calvary. It's the objective reality of his love to us. Christ loved me and gave himself for me. There are words used in the New Testament, are they? Redemption, redeemed, ransomed, a ransom being paid. Remember Peter writing, to the church, and he's saying like this, that we have not been redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold. It's not by material things, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot or without blemish. Look at Calvary. See what he has done. That he has shed his blood in order that you and I can be washed, to be cleansed from our sin. But we all know that, don't we? But what about subjectively? I'm sure that some of you are thinking, oh, what does it mean to be subjectively? It is possible, isn't it, to know the love of Jesus in an experiential way. How do children know that you love them? Two things, isn't it? One is what you do for them. You feed them, you clothe them, You put them to bed. They know it's demonstrated in what you're doing. The fact that you love them because you're doing these particular things for them. And you're doing it out of love. But they also know it, isn't it, when you pick them up. And you put your arms around them. And you cuddle them. And you give them a kiss. And especially perhaps if they've fallen and they've hurt themselves, you know, what do they want? They want that one who is dearest and nearest to them to come and comfort them. The one that they feel loves them. And you know what you find is that Jesus demonstrates his love to us. There's these great verses in uh, Ephesians chapter 3. And in Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul is praying 
at the end of that particular chapter. And he says like this, he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That's the church. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend and may be able to grasp with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Jesus or to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. What is Paul talking about there then? To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Can I tell you that this is a foretaste of heaven itself, okay? One of the things that's going to happen when you and I get to heaven and to glory is to experience all of the love of God, unhindered by the fact that we have sin within us, which again desensitizes us. But to know the love of Jesus is to experience his love within us, to taste his love. How often you get expressions about tasting the goodness of the Lord. We taste his love. Or if you think of Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 for a moment, isn't it? The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by that Holy Spirit that is given unto us. In other words, something happens deep within our souls that creates an emotional contact, contact with Jesus. And more than that, but it's a spiritual union with Jesus, whereby we know within ourselves that I am loved by Jesus. And because I know this, I can look at Calvary, I can see within myself what he has done for me and what I have experienced of his love. There is this reciprocating event that takes place that I cannot help but love Jesus. Cannot help it. When Peter was writing to the churches in Asia Minor, he says like this, Whom having not seen, you love. You have never seen him, but you love him. You love him for that reason, isn't it? You love him because he died for you at Calvary. You love him because he has come to you and he has expressed and shown his love to you. And you have tasted and experienced something of his love deep within your own soul. And because of that, you cannot help but love him. So the question arises, isn't it? Do we love Jesus? Having not seen him, do we love him? And if we love him, it is because we understand what Calvary is all about and we understand what his love is all about within your own soul. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to be loved? But how much more to be loved by Jesus? This God-man who came into the world, this man who has said, I have the resurrection and the life, and on that last day when he comes again, all who are in the grave shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall come forth, those unto the resurrection of damnation and those unto the resurrection of life. My friend, he is going to summon us to be with himself forever. And we are going to go to that great place
And we are going to be in the marriage feast of the Lamb, enjoying Him forever.